Sunday morning we've been a little uh, out of it related to it, but we are in the middle of a series of, of studies from 1 Corinthians as we study the book in a series entitled um, Christian Living in a Pagan World. And that certainly was the world of the church at Corinth. And uh, if you are uh, don't have a Bible with you today. Men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. Just wave, get their attention. Look at a Bible into your hands. And then uh, please, if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, Because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But I say this as a concession, not as a commandment. For I wish that all men were even as I myself, and Paul was single at this time, but each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that, But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it's good for them if they remain even as I am, single. But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for your word. What are the broad diversity of what you address in your word and what's important to you. And what you know is important to us. We thank you for this instruction today. We ask you freshly fill us with your Holy Spirit. Give us a fresh sensitivity to your voice, Lord, and the things that you want to speak to each of us today in this room. And we ask these things of you, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. In chapter 6, we were given instruction by the Apostle Paul and the Holy Spirit concerning sex outside of marriage, that it is forbidden. And in these verses now, as he begins 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul gives us instruction concerning the sexual relationship within marriage. Now, I think that most of us... um, probably fall in the category that when we think of the Apostle Paul, we rarely think of him as a marriage counselor. And we really rarely think of him as a sex therapist. But in this passage, he is. I think that many Christians would be shocked to discover that Paul not only taught against the misuse of sex that occurs in sexual immorality, but that he also spoke for a 
beautiful and a fulfilling sex life for Christians who are married. I think that sometimes we can think of the Apostle Paul and say this is the last thing in the world that he would talk about. I mean, here's the man who went up into the third heavens. He's been to heaven in his lifetime. Whether a vision or whether taken up there literally to see, you know, physically to see what he saw and all, whether in the body or out of the body, he said, I don't know. But what I saw and what I heard there, it would be unlawful for me to even try to explain it. Here's a man that God has used to write fully a third of the New Testament. And we think about the Apostle Paul and we would think that this isn't a subject that he'd want anything to do with it. He's way too spiritual for all of this. And the subject of sex and marriage is too carnal and too fleshly and worldly. What would Paul speak at all related to this? It's a subject that would be beneath him. The fascinating thing about Paul is he didn't consider it to be that way at all, didn't view it that way at all. When he closed chapter 6, he said this in verse 20, For you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And so glorifying God in our body and in our spirit as Christians is not only expressed by abstaining from sexual immorality, but it is also through how we view and how we experience sex in our marriage relationships. And here Paul tells us, by the Holy Spirit, how to do that, without any hesitation at all. He doesn't blush. He's not uncomfortable with the subject. The language is measured. It's tasteful. It's just how you would expect both him and the Holy Spirit to address it. But he's very, very clear, very direct, very loving, very instructive, related to the subject. No hesitation, no embarrassment at all. Really just fabulously straightforward. He's not uncomfortable with the subject, and he certainly isn't a prude on the subject. I think it's good to be reminded that sex was created by God, the God of the Bible, created by God himself. And we'll talk about that in just a few minutes. Now, Paul addresses this subject. You say, why in the world would Paul pull this out of his hat in this letter to talk about this? And Paul addresses the subject for the simple reason that he had been asked to. And at this point in the letter, all the way from the first six chapters of the book, Paul is addressing problems in the church at Corinth that he had been made aware of by first-hand witnesses to those problems, and he's been instructing them on how to correct them. From chapter 7 all the way through to the end of the book, he answers questions that the saints at Corinth had sent to him. Paul had sent them an earlier letter than 1 Corinthians, and he mentions it in chapter 5, verse 7. And he also tells us in chapter 16, verse 17, that Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, they had delivered the letter to, uh, to the church, this letter of 1 Corinthians. They brought, or, or that first letter they brought 
to the church. And then they brought back a letter from the church to Paul that posed a number of questions to him. And it appears now that Paul begins to answer all of those questions they had written to him. Questions that, uh, and that's why throughout the rest of the, the book, we, Paul reminds them and reminds us as he's writing to them now concerning the things that you wrote to me. So he writes about marriage. He writes about singleness. He writes about uh, the sexual relationship in marriage. He writes about um, how to be a Christian living with a non-Christian, eating foods that have been uh, sacrificed unto idols, the subject of spiritual gifts, the resurrection uh, from the dead, and all various subjects like this. And Paul begins by addressing their first question having to do with the subject of sex in marriage. There might be some of us in the room who, upon hearing something like that, say, well, what questions could there be? You get married, uh, you figure it out, and you move forward. Well, good for you. And I am glad for you. But it's not always that simple for everyone. Different personalities, different life experiences, different gene pools. It can make that subject complicated for people and the instructions needed. Paul begins by giving his perspective, the Holy Spirit's perspective, on singleness in verses 1 and 7 and 8. And he declares in verse 1, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. So the question that they had probably posed to Paul was simply this, is it good for a man not to touch a woman? And to touch a, not to, to touch a woman in that particular culture was a euphemism for sexual intercourse. And it's used as such in Genesis chapter 20, verse 6, also in Proverbs chapter 6, verse 29. So it's not saying that we can't hug our mom. It's not saying that we can't hug our sisters. It's not saying that we can't shake hands or hug another sister in the Lord. That's not what it's talking about. It appears that the question that they posed to Paul was born out of the idea on the part of some Christians in the church at Corinth, that the best way to maintain spiritual purity in this unbelievably sexually charged environment of Corinth was to just give up sex altogether, to just completely become celibate, and even those who are married. And so maybe this is the thing that we ought to do to avoid sexual immorality is just say, that's verboten, that's taken off of the table, then we don't have to even be bothering with it, and, uh, and then we'll be done with the subject, done with the issue. That's maybe the best way to handle it. And when Paul affirms that it's good for a man not to touch a woman, that is, not to marry or to enjoy this physical blessing of marriage, He's affirming the state of being single or unmarried as a Christian um, to declare that singleness was a good thing uh, 2,000 years ago in that uh, European culture. Uh, that was something very, very different. 
in that ancient culture, uh, it was you were considered odd or that there was something wrong with you if you didn't marry immediately, but you remained uh, single. So it was a big deal in the culture. And there can still be a stigma attached, even in our culture, though it's largely been erased by the last 60 years. Um, but you think those of us have been alive long enough, you think about uh, 40, 50, 60 years ago, for a person to remain single was something that people would wonder about that person as a result of that. And so the stigma still at, still moves on even into the culture. And the Bible's written not just the culture of the United States, but of the whole world. And in much of the world, it's considered to be an odd thing for a person to remain single and or for a Christian uh, to do that. And so being single was thought of as just some kind of a terrible condition, certainly a regrettable condition, and that one really had to be married in order to experience uh, God's best. Now, the Jewish, the, the religious teachers of the Jews um, heavily indoctrinated Jews on this particular subject, and the teaching of virtually all rabbis in the ancient world was that if you remain single of your own choice, that that was something that, that not only was it wrong, but it was direct disobedience to the Lord. And they would point back to Genesis chapter 1 where God spoke to man, Adam and Eve, and declared, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. So there's been a lot of reasons why there's a stigma attached to remaining single, both then and now. And what Paul does here is he removes any stigma of any sort upon a Christian remaining single. And in fact, he declares that there are advantages to being single. And one that he speaks of a little bit later in this very same chapter is that the person who is single is able to invest their life more thoroughly and completely into God's call upon their life than the person who is married. The person who is married, Paul will go on to say, has to think about her husband, and the husband has to think about the wife, and then children become involved. And these are time-consuming relationships. We don't say that there's anything wrong with that. But a person who is single has monumental amounts of time in comparison to then direct toward God's call upon their life and toward Christian service. And Paul knew of the advantages of a single person over the married person in this regard. He knew that from, from experience. In all likelihood, at one point in time, the Apostle Paul had been married. Um, he wasn't married at, in, in anywhere in the record that we have from his conversion on uh, and, and then in his missionary journeys and all, he didn't leave a wife and family to go on those uh, journeys. He was single at that time. And we have no biblical revelation for what it is that why he was married at one time and now why is he single. His wife, the, the explanation could be as simple that his wife died. Others kind of uh, speculate a little bit that Perhaps uh, his wife left him due to his conversion. You remember the Apostle Paul was not just uh, serious about God and serious about religion, but he declares himself to be a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was, he was a part of the strictest sect of the Jews known as the Pharisees, and he was in the upper 
5% of that sect. So he was this absolute zealot uh, in terms of religion and in terms of God. He was, had it all mixed up in his mind under the religious system. But this is the man he was when he headed off to Damascus in order to persecute Christians there. And on the way, he becomes converted and talk about a before and after picture. Whoo! God changed his life in an instant, just like he does with all of our lives. And so you might imagine that the Apostle Paul might come home, and here he is. He's gone from having this prestigious position among the Jews and among the Pharisees and all of this. And his wife looks and says, maybe I didn't sign up for this. And uh, this is against my convictions. I don't believe in what you've done here now. And she would just head off to live with her family. I wouldn't, wouldn't surprise me if that was the explanation for it. But what we do know is that Paul was at one time married and uh, because he was a member of the Sanhedrin. And the book of Acts tells us, which was a 70-man council that were the 70 highest positions in Judaism at that time. And a requirement to be a part of the Sanhedrin is that you had to be married. So he was married at one time, but now he is single. But he understands both sides of it. He understands about being uh, uh, married. He understands about uh, being uh, single in in this because not only from watching but also from life experience. Now, when he says that it is good not to touch a woman, he is not as a result saying that marriage is bad or that marriage is inferior uh, to living the single life. He's just simply saying it's perfectly proper and honorable for a man or a woman to live in strict celibacy and singleness as a Christian. And you read through the passage, and Paul goes to great lengths all the way through the chapter not to make the single Christian feel like they are second-class citizens or experiencing something less between themselves and God by virtue of not being married, but he's equally concerned to make clear to those who are married that they are not second-class citizens or they have not settled for something inferior to the person uh, who has chosen to remain uh, single. He affirms both of them to be good, and they're each good in their own way. And he does that for the simple reason that he recognized that the ability to live a single life for the purpose of remaining free from distractions of married life in order to invest that time in the service of the Lord, that that's a gift from God. And you either have that gift or you don't. And if you have that gift, that's wonderful. And if you don't have that gift, you can't buy it with bazooka gum comics or anything. You either have it or you don't in terms of the gift of celibacy. And if you have it, then you'll have the grace to live that kind of life, including the grace to live a sexually celibate life. And if you don't have the gift of celibacy, you crave and you need the companionship of a husband or a wife, including the sexual relationship that's a part of that, then he's saying, don't agonize over that. That's your gift. Now, live for God and serve God in the context of marriage. 
in representing in that marriage the relationship between Jesus Christ and the church. Now, most people are going to marry. Most people don't have the gift of celibacy. And they're going to have a desire for the companionship and the relationship and a desire uh, to uh, marry. And that's all really by God's design. Genesis chapter 2, the Lord said, It is not good that man should be alone, and I will make a helper comparable to him. So he looked at Adam, he looks at man and says, They need help. (laughs) They need a helper. They need a companion. And we're made for that. And he made woman as, among other things, as a helper to man and a companion uh, to man. And in verse 7, speaking of both singleness and marriage, Paul declared, but each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and the other in that. And so to live the Christian life from the context of either being single or being married, it all requires a special grace from God. Now let's turn our attention to Paul's instruction concerning sex within marriage. Now when Paul writes in this particular passage, he's not doing an in-depth Uh, broad uh, handling of marriage as a whole. Uh, He does that in other parts of the Bible. Here his focus is very specific. It's very, very uh, narrow, and I don't mean that uh, negatively uh, at all. And here his purpose is to just specifically address the subject of the sexual relationship between a husband and wife. Now, since the sexual relationship can only be expressed within the context of marriage without being sinful, then getting married is the single greatest thing that a person can do who does not have the gift of celibacy on a practical level, the single greatest thing that he can do or she in order to maintain a sexually pure life. Those who study these things Uh, speak about the strength of the sex drive. I think everybody understands after a certain age the strength of the sex drive. The sex drive is very strong. Sometimes people say, God, why did you have to make it so strong in me? Well, he had to make it strong because if he didn't make it strong, didn't make it a strong drive in our life, the men would all go fishing. And the women would all go shopping. You excuse the stereotypes. And mankind would have died off in one generation. All you have to do is just witness the trucks driving up and down the freeway and everywhere with a little bumper sticker. I'd rather be fishing. There's the point right there. There's the problem. So God gives a sex drive in order that we wouldn't die off in one generation. Those who study these things say that the sex drive is the fourth strongest drive in uh, mankind. When you're a little younger, you'd say, I don't know about fourth. I think it's higher than that. But it's after uh, the, the drive for air and water and then food. And sex drive is the fourth strongest drive. So... God has given us this sex drive, and he's told us that it's only to be satisfied within the committed covenant of marriage. Then 
if a person does not have the gift of celibacy, then they ought to get married where the sex drive can find a holy expression. Again, remember, Paul is not addressing the subject of marriage broadly. He just, as it applies to sex, he is not saying that this is the only reason to get married is for uh, sexual uh, expression. There's a little bit more uh, to it uh, than that. But it definitely is a reason for marriage. So if somebody comes into our office for premarital counseling and we say, why do you want to get married? And they say, we just were dying for sex. Well, that might not, that's a reason to get married. But it's, we like to hear other things too. Do you love each other? Let's start there. Do you respect one another? Do you want this marriage to glorify the Lord? Do you believe it's God's will for you to be married? I mean, these are things that factor in as well. Now, notice in verse 3 that Paul informs us that both husband and wife are to render the affection due to their spouse. And this isn't talking about cuddling on the couch when he talks about affection here on that. See, honey, we're supposed to cuddle more. Uh, maybe so, but he's talking about a little more than this. This means that each spouse has a God-given responsibility to desire to satisfy their spouse, spouse sexually. The word render that is used there in the Greek language, in the original language, that verb is in the present imperative, meaning that the sexual relationship between a husband and a wife is to be active, it is to be habitual, it is to be ongoing throughout the marriage, of course, as um, age allows, as physical health allows, but that that is is supposed to be an ongoing part of marriage. And Paul is saying that each partner in a marriage is due. That's a strong word. In other words, they have the right to a sexual relationship as a part of marriage. And it's significant. Just disregard the mic problems on things because the content's much more important. So it's significant that he calls on the husband to render this to his wife and that the wife is to render it to her husband. In other words, this shouldn't be something that one spouse has to coerce out of the other spouse or one spouse has to plead for or ask for out of their spouse. We are to be servants to our spouses in this area of our life, making sure that this part of the marriage is met in our spouse's life, that this the sexual relationship for my spouse is rich and it's satisfying and that it is enjoyable and a blessing within the marriage. And how a wife makes that so for a husband may mean in general, a greater frequency of sexual intimacy than she needs. And how a husband makes that so for his wife 
is in learning what pleases her and then in taking all the time that she needs for intimacy to take place. You will also notice that Paul makes this the responsibility of the husband to the wife and the wife to the husband. He directs it both ways. Why? Because in many marriages, the sex drive of the husband and the wife can be different, even dramatically different in terms of the drive that they feel. And within reason, the spouse who has the weaker sex drive needs to be sensitive to and to respond to the spouse with the stronger sex drive. And if one partner desires the sexual relationship, then the other partner should respond to that desire. Now, having said that, there needs to be some, um, if we're going to be servants to one another and love one another, a person is wise to be sensitive to the larger context of life and all of this. Um, Certainly, if a spouse can't realistically engage in sexual intimacy because they've got the flu or they've got something far worse than the flu that limits them uh, in in that way. Uh, They have a legitimate headache. Or maybe they've just had a tough day. I mean, the bomb has gone off in their life mentally, emotionally. They are wounded for that day. And... uh, and, and so that ought to be taken into consideration as, as well by the other partner uh, toward the one in terms of, of the relationship. Now, one of the temptations for singles, Paul is saying in all of this, is not to become sexually active before marriage. But one of the temptations for some, not for everyone, but for some who are married is not to remain sexually active uh, throughout the marriage after becoming uh, married. Now, verse 4 tells us that when we took that marriage vow with our spouse, we relinquished the exclusive right to our own body. That's what we did when we got married. And in doing so, we agreed to give our spouse a right to our body for sexual enjoyment as well. Why is that important? Why is it important to say, my body belongs to her, her body belongs to me, and for the the husband and the wife to have that understanding? Because sex is never to be used as a weapon in marriage is never to be used as a means of control in marriage. It's never to be used as a reward and punishment mechanism within a marriage or as a means of manipulation. When people do that in a marriage, whether the husband toward the wife or the wife toward the husband, they are violating verse 4. What they're saying is, I still view my body as my own, and I will do with it whatever I choose to do with it. But Paul says in the Christian marriage, our body belongs to our spouse. And so there isn't this 
holding the body back from the other person. There's the recognition that my body is not to be used, again, as a means of control or manipulation or reward or punishment. My body belongs as much to him or her as it belongs uh, to uh, me. And the person who uses sex in a selfish way Uh, without recognizing my body belongs to my spouse then and tries to use their body to then manipulate the marriage, that's going to do terrible damage in that marriage, not just in the area of the sexual relationship, but in the marriage as a whole. And so, again, we want to be a servant to our spouses in the area of sex and to view the sexual relationship as just one more way to serve God and to obey God. Now, notice in verse 5 that neither the husband or the wife is to deprive the other partner sexually, to hold back sex from the other partner. Paul cannot be clearer than he is. That is forbidden. Nobody has a right to do that. Nobody is allowed to do that. Because If marriage is the only sanctified place in which to express ourselves sexually and then our spouse denies us satisfaction in this area, then we don't have anywhere else to turn. And that's a terrible place to put another person in life uh, in. And so a spouse is not to be deprived because of a lack of interest in sex on the part of their spouse. Um, Sometimes uh, somebody who's lost all interest in sex for one reason or another, or they have a very uh, limited sex drive, or they're just not that much interested in that, and they're married to someone who is in the completely other end of the spectrum, and the person who has is less interested, that partner might protest, well, don't I have to be in the mood? In a word, no. No, you don't. You have to be in the mood to be a servant. You don't have to be in the mood because if you're only in the mood once a week or once a month and your spouse is in the mood every other day, then you need to see things from the vantage point of their need and to serve them in this way. So a spouse should never be deprived on the basis of the proverbial headache It really doesn't exist or any excuses like that. And one spouse shouldn't be deprived because the other spouse considers sex to be uh, slightly dirty or to be base or some kind of a carnal, um, you know, unholy, unsanctified activity. I, I think that it's sad where it exists, and I think that that attitude oftentimes exists Number one, because, um, you know, God's word isn't heeded to. People aren't learning about the sexual relationship from the holiness and the beauty of God's word. Most people are learning about um, sex from, um, uh, you know, venues that are dirty. And they do defile Sex and make it something that God never intended it to be. Whether it's music, the degrading uh, portrayal of sex in so much music today, or whether in entertainment or movies or 
whatever, uh, whatever it might be. And so sometimes the world turns sex into something that's dirty and it then carries over into everybody's mind. Sometimes people feel that sex is kind of slightly dirty because um, a person might come from a sexually immoral background before they become a Christian, and so there's kind of that baggage that's related to it, and they'll carry it then on into um, the marriage instead of realizing, no, I'm a new person. This is I need to concentrate on who and what I'm supposed to be now in this marriage and not be tainted about related to my past. Sometimes it occurs because of an indoctrination of a loved one or maybe a, a parent. In the old days, I don't know what it's like today, but most of that kind of uh, frigidity and that kind of thing would come from uh, maybe a well-meaning mom speaking to a daughter about, listen, it's going to be terrible and grin and bear it and just think about what a nice man he is everywhere else in life and all the other blessings of married life to you. And people then go in with this like this is a, they're jaded already related to sex and the sexual relationship. But the Bible teaches that sex is a wonderful thing. It's a beautiful thing when it's experienced as God intends it. In fact, I think it probably would be shocking to the whole world, again, to realize that God created sex. And he presided, he presided over the very first wedding, very first marriage ceremony in uniting Adam and Eve, and he united them with these words, Genesis 2. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. God encapsulates marriage in just three phrases. A man shall leave his father and his mother. Number two, he shall be joined together with his wife. And then number three, they shall become one flesh. This is speaking about the sexual or the physical relationship in marriage. So God created the sexual relationship between a husband and a wife. Not embarrassed about it at all. Not embarrassed about it at all. That's why he puts it in the book. Wouldn't have put it in the book if he was embarrassed about it at all. Interesting to realize that the sexual relationship was pre-fall. It was pre-fall, before the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden. When God speaks of all of his creation and he looks at it and he declares all of it to be good, including the sexual relationship, he calls it a good thing. And somebody say, well, why make a big deal out of all of this? I've, the reason I do is because the world and the devil have come along now and they are now claiming to be the experts on all of this. You say, you want, I want to learn a little bit about, somebody may just wake up one day and say, I'd like to learn a little bit more. This is a kind of a funny thing, you know, just finding out about sex and these things, uh, not by experience, but uh, theoretically and academically. And uh, I'd like to know a little bit more about what this is and all. Almost nobody would turn to the Bible. Oh, you want the experts, Dr. Ruth, and then you've got all these books over here and get in the, I mean, they're the pros, they're the experts. You don't go to God. He blesses every time. Ooh. He's omnipresent except in that room. I mean, that's a, he's in all of his, just, so you don't want to go to God related to all of that. And the fact of the matter is they aren't the experts. God's the expert concerning sex. The average person's conception, I think, of Christians and sex is that we couldn't know the first thing at all about it because the God of the Bible is all uptight about the subject. Well, that's a person that's never read 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 
And that's a person who's never read the Old Testament book of the Song of Solomon. I know that every book of the Bible testifies, volume of the book, the Bible says, testifies of Jesus, and the Song of Solomon does. But there is no denying that that book is a celebration of marital love and sexual relationship. You got everything going on in that book except Barry White singing in the background. And you read the Song of Solomon, and it's so pure, and it's so joyous, and it's so innocent, and so free, and it's so uninhibited. Just to explore it and to enjoy it with someone who's committed enough to you to marry you. And sex really is beautiful, but it is a holy act. It is a sacred experience. God intends it to be that way. It is that And Paul's instruction on sex and marriage in our passage, as well as the Song of Solomon, it flies in the face of some Christians' contention that this sexual relationship is solely for procreation. Okay, you have that baby, all right, we've got got one of these things here, and so, okay, once a year, let's get to try again until we get that. It's all procreation. You're not reading the Bible carefully. And we're not understanding what Paul is saying here. Clearly, it is intended to bring pleasure into the marriage relationship. It's pleasurable. God intended it to be pleasurable. And it's a blessing because he wants it to be a blessing. Now, one significant reason that we are not to deprive our spouse of sexual intimacy is because Satan then takes advantage of that kind of a situation to then tempt the deprived individual, the deprived spouse, and thus the unsatisfied spouse into uh, sin. And so the spouse with the weaker sex drive needs to take this into account. And if he or she determines that the sexual relationship within the marriage is only going to be engaged in on their terms then this sets up the spouse with a stronger sex drive, uh, sets them up to be sorely tempted by the devil. And we need to take that temptation of our spouse into account related to uh, the sexual uh, relationship. And a spouse who closes off this area of their marriage and they only want to engage in it on their terms, they can literally be used by the devil to destroy their own marriage and they don't even realize that they've done it. Now, having said that, I want to be very quick to add that this doesn't mean that the deprived spouse can go engage in sexual sin due to the disobedience of their spouse. But it does mean that the spouse who is holding back on things makes life very, very difficult in terms of temptation for the other spouse. Now, notice in verse 5, Paul mentions one exception for which the sexual relationship between a husband and wife can be interrupted for a time. And that's in order to engage in prayer and also in fasting. So, um, assuming health and ability to enjoy the sexual relationship 
the sexual relationship is not to be interrupted for any other reason than the spiritual purpose of praying and then also fasting. But he tells us four things that are important to notice there. Number one, it is only to be done when there's mutual consent between the husband and the wife. The wife can't come from her quiet time and say, God has just shown me that I'm to give up sex for the rest of my life to engage in prayer and fasting. The husband can't do that to the wife. It's something that they mutually agree to. Okay, for this set amount of time, we are going to give ourselves undistractedly to prayer and fasting related to some other issue in our life where we don't want any distraction in terms of prayer and in terms of fasting. So it's important to be very clear, no matter how spiritual a person may be and no matter how much they love God, they cannot unilaterally decide to stop engaging in sex in in the marriage. God does not want any prayer or any fasting being directed toward him at the expense of sexual frustration on the part of the other spouse. He says, I don't want it. Pray and fast and continue to express yourself sexually. But I don't want to have fasting and prayer going on here. And I see right over here what it's doing to the other spouse here. So he doesn't want it. It's only to occur for a limited time, and it is only to happen for a very express spiritual purpose. And then he says they're to come together again, reestablish the sexual relationship, uh, lest they lose self-control and become vulnerable to temptation. And in verse 6, when Paul says, I say this as a concession, not as a commandment, what he's, he's saying there, he's making it clear when he speaks to married couples here, I'm not telling you that you have to forego sex to, in order to engage in fasting and in prayer. I'm, I'm just saying that that's the limitations there if you do decide to do that. But I'm not compelling every married couple that they need to do that to prove their spirituality either. Again, in verse 8, he encourages those of us in the room who are single that singleness is a good thing. And then in verse 9, Paul finally informs us that it's better to marry than to burn with passion or sexual desire with an unfulfilled sexual desire that puts you in danger of falling into sin. And so Paul just says, listen, if you don't have the gift of celibacy, don't try to live the single life. If you don't have that kind of a gift, just go ahead and marry. There's nothing wrong with that. And a sure sign that a person doesn't have the gift of celibacy is they long to be married and they have a great need for um, that uh, sexual uh, relationship with a husband or with a wife. And so Paul says, go ahead and uh, get married and glorify God in that relationship. And so it's a wonderful passage. I mean, just practical, 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 tremendous passage on how to glorify God in this area of our Christian lives. And a failure to heed it, a failure to obey this instruction in the area of sex can really lead to so many problems within a marriage, and God doesn't want us to be experiencing um, that uh, 
uh, that kind of those kind of problems. So straight straight talk on a subject where clarity and straightforwardness is very very important and very very needed. And maybe one or two of us in the room, you look and you say, "What a perfect waste of time! Who could ever have problems like that?" I think that would be a young person. Life is complicated. God sees the whole world. He sees every marriage. He didn't put this into the Bible because he didn't have enough to say about other things. He knows what he sees. And he knows what he hears. And he knows what we need to be instructed on. So it's a good word. It's an important one. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Father, thank you for your concern for every area of our life. And you desire that every area of our life be blessed. That we would experience the fullness of your intent and your desires for marriage, Lord, in every way. Thank you for this instruction. Not merely on sex but for this instruction on how to glorify you in this area, whether single or married, because we live to glorify you and to bring you pleasure. And we pray for one another in this room, Lord, and ask that you would brood upon every marriage And, Lord, for sure there are marriages that are far away from what you describe in this passage. We pray that you breathe hope into those marriages. We pray that there wouldn't be any knee-jerk reaction against the teaching today or a panic attack or confusion about what the next step might be or how to establish this after so many years of tension in this area of their life. We pray that you just take them by the hand. Let them know that you're greater than any past and greater than any need in our life and that you'll be willing to walk them into the relationship that you have described here in your word and then do it Lord and we ask all these things of you in Jesus name Amen